Welcome to another edition of Global Investment Leaders. Welcome to Global Investment Leaders. I'm Chaz Burkhart, CEO of Rosemont. Today, I'm joined by Mike Manning, the managing partner of NEPC, which is a tenured institutional consulting and OCIO firm headquartered in Boston. Mike, great to be with you again. Great to be here with you, Chaz. Thanks for having me. Well, why don't we start with your background? Tell us a little bit about how you arrived at NEPC, because I'm sure it wasn't a straightforward journey necessarily. No, that's a that's a fair assessment. Um, you know, I've been at NEPC for almost 25 years now. Uh, it, it turns out uh, that uh, my dad was a client a long time ago and was dating a girl who had worked at NEPC. And after business school, I had moved out to Chicago. And Dick called, asked Dick Charlton, the founder of NEPC, called and, and asked if I'd be interested in joining. I came, uh, sat down with him and had a great conversation and decided to move to to NEPC. And it was a, an awesome decision. has lived up to everything I hoped it would be. And how many years ago was that? Almost 25. So without dating yourself too much, how has your role evolved? I came in to replace somebody who'd left back in 97. Uh, so immediately jumped in as a senior consultant, working with clients really across the full spectrum of the types of clients that we serve. You know, my first clients were Taft-Hartley, public plans, um, endowments and foundations, a hospital, uh, law firms, uh, things like that. So really across the entire spectrum. And I think that was really helpful for me to get a, a broad understanding of the different needs that our client types have. And it, even today, we're the most diversified investment consulting firms in terms of the expertise we have across all of those. So I was really lucky. I joined at a time when everyone was generalists and there was a need for me to work on all those different types of accounts. And I, I found it to be a, a real plus uh, in leading the, the firm today. So did that for really my whole career. I still work on clients today. It obviously takes up less of my time, but it's something I still love to do. And I think it's important to be connected to our clients and understanding how the, the world is shifting. But I started full-time working on clients and have gradually uh, taken on increasing levels of responsibility, became the president of NEPC in 2003, and then the title actually changed to managing partner in 2011 and have been that uh, ever since. Well, I spent some time with Dick and the management committee, as you know, maybe 20 or 25 years ago on ownership and internal transition issues and contemplating strategic alternatives at times. And I guess what appeals to me is the fact that this company has gone from Dick Charlton's brainchild and a much smaller, I guess, more parochial company to now a very large firm from my perspective. It's certainly not in the camp of Mercer or BlackRock or some of the, of the biggest folks that you might compete against, but 350 people, eight locations, clients around the country and parts of the world. How would you describe from your perspective kind of the key traits of NEPC today? What has NEPC evolved to that I have a feeling you've been very intentional in its evolution and strategy from that much smaller firm uh, long ago. Yeah, I think the, the DNA of the firm existed at the time that Dick founded it, right? You, you do right by the clients. 
you set up the company in a way that you can you know, be independent as you can from the conflicts of interest. You take a, a willingness to think broadly about the investment structure and the things you're willing to do for clients in terms of the investment portfolio. And if you do that right, you know, your business will be able to grow. On top of that, attracting and retaining great people. You know, part of that is, is having the resources so the client that our consultants can go out and do a great job for clients. Also, the discussion that you had with Dick about ownership. Dick was very early to share ownership first as part of a phantom equity plan, then as a literal equity plan, and now as part of an LLC structure, which allows us to transfer ownership more fluidly than many other competitors uh, have been able to do. And I think that basic footprint, while it's larger, that DNA has been really critical to our success and the ability to attract and retain and incent great people and they do a good job for clients. And then you get the, the flywheel effect of you do a great job for clients. You, NEPC has success, can invest back in resources and more people uh, and continue to do a good job. So, you know, while it may be intentional, I think the, the core of that DNA uh, has been in place for a long time. And, you know, we've been willing to be a diversified firm in terms of the types of clients that we work on, the assets that we oversee, asset types, meaning traditional alternatives, whether it be private markets, hedge funds, real estate, things along those lines, and also the way we engage with clients, whether it be on advisory or a discretionary or OCIO basis. Yes, two business observations that I would make from that time that I spent with the management committee a while back, and then just knowing you and a lot of your colleagues over the years, is one is that the company was, A, very interested in maintaining its employee-owned culture and supporting that employee-owned culture, which I guess has been manifested by the ongoing successful transition of equity among partners, which as you know, that is not something that is easily done or even considered at a lot of your peers. And I, I want to get to the M&A bonanza here in a bit okay. um, as, as part of what's been going on in, in your and my world. But I think it's been successful and intentional with regard to employee equity transition and functional transition. And also, from a long time ago, NEPC has had higher than average industry margins. And without talking specifically about numbers, as you know, the consulting business is often a great challenge with regard to creating enough financial viability and enough buffer both to get you through tough times, to not have to lay folks off when things get tight, but also then to support valuations for the stock that people would want to own and that they would actually risk some of their compensation and some of their net worth to own it. And I think that's something that is a little bit unique about NEPC that you don't see in other consulting firms is kind of that institutional commercial sense of profitability as it relates to this is a real business that's been invested in by multiple people over a couple of generations and it sustained itself very well. Yeah, well, thanks for recognizing that. I mean, you know, honestly, <laughs> it, it is a commercial enterprise, right? And for us to be successful and be able to invest back in people and, and resources, you have to have the stability and profitability uh, in order to be able uh, to do that. So I think we've always been disciplined about um, how much we'll extend ourselves, how much we'll you know, invest, you know, where I think there are some people that say, all right, I'm going to go to to this line of business and I'm going to forget everything else and, and go only in one direction, which can work out spectacularly well. 
but it also brings a, a different level of risk. And I think where we are as running a business is very similar to how we advise our clients in terms of being diversified. You know, we want to, we're across all the different segments. It's being disciplined of not, not getting too far out over your skis, but then also being dynamic. When you see an opportunity, don't be afraid to go chase that, whether it's adding new talent or looking at a particular segment of the market that is ripe for our services, you know, being willing to, to go after that but not in a bet the farm type of way. I think that that's helped us, you know, the investment business and any client servicing business are tough enough. Let's not put business risk on top of it. We want our, our people focused on doing the right thing for clients and solving the investment puzzle, not worried about is the company going to go under. And I think that actually yeah. go back a, a 18 or two years now, which is crazy to think about, you know, very early on in COVID, we told all our employees, we're not laying anybody off. We felt like we had the financial structure and stability to tell people that so they could put their own personal concerns about their financial health to bed and focus on clients at that time. I think that was really critical for us to be able to do. And that's when that stability and, and financial health makes a difference, you know, not just for our employees, but also for our ability to deliver for clients. Go back to the point you just made about being able to be dynamic and nimble. Is yep. there a specific example that you can share with us as to how you've done that or an occasion where you were not hidebound nor, and you had the financial flexibility to pursue something that ended up being a very good choice? Yeah, there are, there are a lot. I, you know, we've probably added more investment consulting lateral talent than any other firm in the industry. We bring a lot of people who love being in consulting, but want to be in a better platform and better for some people means employee owned better for some means no conflicts and better for some means having more resources. So whatever it is that's, that drives them here. So the ability to go add people in that, even though it might disrupt the margins for a year or there's an expense that's not going to come with associated revenue. A more recent example or, or five years ago, you know, we saw the private wealth market as a place that was probably underserved by independent institutional or in that case, not institutional, but that institutionally minded consulting firms and did a uh, sort of market scan of who's out there, people we wanted to talk to, uh, ended up talking to some people from uh, the former CTC organization. Um, a few people decided to join us. And then from there, we've had 10 or 11 others who followed them to join us uh, here at NEPC. So, you know, the ability to make that investment over a multi-year period is the flexibility that, that we as independent owners have, you don't have to worry about quarterly earnings. You don't have to worry about an outside owner that wants their dividend and what all that means. It, you can really take the long term to invest. So I think that's a pretty good example of, of what we've done. Well, why don't we just go right to the M&A bonanza and your okay. intentionality about staying out of that euphoria and what seems to be just kind of constant deal-making every day, even going back over the last five years, what you've seen with Rokatan and Goldman or Makita and PCA or Rogers, Casey, Siegel and Marco and so many others. You, as you've just said, put a lot of weight on being able to make your own decisions about not being compromised and about not having another agenda. But a lot of the decisions that have been made by your brethren and by your competitors I think have also been based on, are we going to have enough scale? Are we going to have enough resources to compete with kind of this ever bigger, more capable set of competitors? Are we going to be able to do it at fees and at the kind of financials that you've been used to achieving, which as I said, have, have been notably quite good. 
you haven't felt that pressure. And I'm wondering in part, have you not felt it because A, you've, you've found that you could do a very good job, perhaps a better job for your clients without all the considerations and complications perhaps of other owners combining other forces and firms. Give me a little bit more about specifically why you have rebuffed and or not taken the plunge that so many of your competitors have. Yeah, so I wouldn't say we don't feel the pressure. We probably just don't feel it as acutely as some other folks have. And so, you know, it wouldn't surprise you in the business you're in to know that we've had a lot of suitors and had conversations with people in the past. And, you know, ultimately it comes back to, is this the right thing for serving our clients? And is it the right thing for the employee base as a whole, right? The easiest thing to do, I mean, particularly for Dick, when he was getting closer to retirement, you know, selling the firm from his standpoint is probably more of a financial windfall. But I think he looked out and said, hey, we've got a promise here that we made to our clients and our partners and our employees. Uh, And to his credit, you know, did not give in to the siren song. I mean, not that you can completely do it as one person in a partnership, but I think that is that's held true uh, for most of the people at NEPC. It's hard to look at the bonanza and say, gosh, I'd love to participate in that. But I I think we're looking at it from the, the long term view and feel like you know, we do have the, the scale that you talked about, you know, with a 60 plus person research team, we're big enough to have the resources to meet the needs of our, our clients. That doesn't mean we're not going to continue to grow and invest in those resources. You know, at the same time, we don't have the pressure that a lot of organizations do where it's owned by a smaller group of people who are looking for liquidity. And the fact that we've been deliberate and long-term and intentional about how we're transferring ownership and management uh, has helped us avoid the acute pressure that I think others have had to do. And so I feel fortunate that we, you know, whether by luck or skill got, got over the hump where we had the scale and we had the plan that allowed us to have the flexibility to do that. We want to do what we want to do. You know, I I think we would be interested in the, not the bonanza part, because I think if we could find an organization that wanted to to partner with us on the right terms, and there's a strong cultural fit and a reason that it could help our our mutual clients, I think we'd be okay with that. But I don't think you're going to see any PCs sell out to the highest bidder. That's just not who we are. Yeah. Combinations of like-minded complementary consulting businesses where you get good matchups in terms of client bases and sectors and research teams and strengths in certain areas. And it's just a good compliment that I get. And I think that's been done, but you make a good point. Then there's just, you know, it's the highest price and it's about, you know, we're getting to a point in our lives where the founders, the principals are saying, yep, I could sell it internally at a far lower price. Um, and that might be, the preferred route for my colleagues, but to give those founders um, the consideration of the future's unknown. And it's not to say that uh, uh, your colleagues 20 years from now won't be taking the business forward as well as you have perhaps over the last 20, because the world could be a lot tougher. And it could just be that any PC's position in it is, is much tougher to achieve. But I do think for now, what you have established is that a completely independent completely employee-owned business of your scale, absolutely more than adequately prepared to meet the the challenges that you set forward for yourself and to put forth budgets and uh, goals um, that you are achieving or exceeding. It's not hurting you not to be acquired. 
Yeah, in, in some ways it's helpful. You know, if you went back 10 or 15 years ago, you know, we talked about the sea of sameness. It's hard to differentiate yourself. I mean, today we're the largest truly independently owned investment consulting firm. And the fact that we can have the scale and be independently owned and not have those other conflicts, I think is a real plus for, you know, for that's important to some clients and it's important to some potential uh, employees. And yes. so the, the fact that we're distinct in that way and can still deliver for our clients, you know, I, I think is a plus in some ways. It's not right for everybody, but I, I think for us, it's, it's continued to serve us well. And we look out in the future and think we can continue to do that. I, I would agree. And I think it's served you well so far. And I won't hold you to that for the rest of time um, because life is fluid and, and I'm yep. sure you will have more inquiries and more suitors. But and, and Google hasn't decided to get in the investment consulting business yet. So <laughs> <laughs> let's go back to kind of your investment core yep. and investment themes. I know when we chatted over time that private market investments or liquid investments have been a greater percentage of your clients' allocations, particularly in the private debt markets and vehicles. Talk to me a little bit about how that's manifesting itself. Is that really what you see as kind of one of the key themes in 2022 and beyond? What, what other key investment themes are your clients and your research group pushing forward? Yeah, it's a really interesting time, right? From Not that we haven't lived in a lot of interesting times during <laughs> the 25 years I've been doing it. Um, but projecting forward, you know, you've got a few big trends that you've got to be cautious about. One, the forward-looking returns in the public markets from the valuation levels we are today and the yield levels where they are, are not going to help our investors meet their investment objectives. So you have to think about what other things can I do to extend the opportunity set and get a higher potential rate of return. Taking on some illiquidity and earning that illiquidity premium is certainly a way to do that. You know, whether that is in the private equity component, private debt, we think is an area that's frankly underutilized by a lot of investors. You know, while it doesn't have the same high returns that venture and, and buyouts do, the risk profile and the, the cash flow characteristics are still really attractive relative to other bond investments. And then clearly we've got real estate and hedge funds and, and things like that. So I think we'll continue to see a trend towards more illiquid investments um, because of the opportunity set. And because there are a lot of client types whose you know, the recent market run has helped build much stronger balance sheets for a lot of our clients or you know, asset basis for the clients, and they can probably take on more uh, illiquidity than they're already doing. Not everyone can. And that's one of the, the areas that we have to work really closely with different clients to understand whether it be from uh, what commitments they have or whether it be from a regulatory uh, reasons uh, or just personal risk preferences, how much illiquidity that they think they can take uh, within their, their overall portfolio. But it's, it's certainly a discussion we're having across all of our different client types about the level of uh, risk and return that they're trying to shoot for and what are the things we can do to get there. So that's one. Another big one is obviously inflation. And you know we're starting to see that as part of our, our life now in a way that has not been uh, at any point in most people's, you know, certainly most people at NEPC, their investment career. And frankly, most people who are on the investment committees uh, of a lot right. of our clients haven't had to deal with inflation and what that means and how you think about 
building portfolios to compensate for that. So that's certainly a big part of the focus of our research team and a part of a big part of discussions we're having with clients. How important is inflation going to be for them? What are the impacts that it has on the commitments that they've made to the underlying beneficiaries of the assets? And what, if anything, should we do in the portfolio to help offset that? I want to go back to, I think, a very important point that you made about being a quality and worthwhile investor in private markets, and that is earning the illiquidity premium, which I think a lot of institutional investors and consultants have not. And I know that when we were raising funds and I was going through your colleagues on the research side there, they had a very high bar. And I gained great appreciation for it over time as I look more at the competition and some of the results over multiple fund cycles and what your research colleagues were looking for in private equity and smaller private equity funds. But could you generalize, is it fair to generalize across the private market landscape at NEPC, roughly what percentage of the funds that you have employed have met or exceeded that that illiquidity premium? I'm trying to think how best to answer the question. I mean, the returns have been so astounding recently that I would say it's a pretty high percentage that have met that illiquidity uh, premium. The counter to that is the public markets have gone gangbusters as well. And and so I don't know that, um, you know, even though it's a very high percentage and I could say, I I don't know what it is exactly, but I could say 85 or 90 percent and just stop there. But I'm not sure that'd be a fair representation, given that we've had really a Goldilocks scenario for investing in private markets um, recently. I think we feel really good about the the client returns that are the the manager returns that our clients have experienced, you know, in terms of the percentage that are in the the upper half, you know, first or second quartile. I mean, that's that's more the way we look at it as opposed to just being the illiquidity premium, because I do think certainly through the most recent marking period, you know, getting those high levels of returns have been fairly easy. You know, we also look at public market equivalents and making sure that we're, we're capturing that right. spread. So I don't have an exact number for you, but I. But that I'm, wasn't I'm my cautious of taking too much comfort in that, even though it would probably benefit me just to say it's nine percent. So. Yeah, well, <laughs> the, the real angle that I was going for there was it's not probably fifty or sixty percent of your funds over time. I mean, clearly three quarters or more of your funds have likely met or exceeded their objectives, or you wouldn't have built the private market programs with your clients that you have, and, and they wouldn't have employed you as they have. But I think the other good point that you make, Mike, is that the illiquidity premium in recent years, especially with the incredible public equity market returns, have been fluid and moving. I mean, I recall that when we were raising our the last fund that we ever raised in 2012, 2013, I want to say that your colleagues told me that if I wasn't very confident that we could deliver a high teens triple net IRR, we were not worth looking at. And that's a pretty high bogey then. And, and I think it might be a little bit different bogey today. Yeah, again, not knowing the exact time frame, but Jazz, as you're talking about in the early, you know, that 2011, 2012 time frame, we had a much higher expectation for what equities could deliver. Um, yeah. You know, probably six or 7% higher, maybe five or 6% higher than what you'd look at today, given, given valuations and dividends and growth expectations. So I think today, if you could, you know, earn, and I think realistically in a, a triple net IRR, if you're in the low teens or, you know, like, you know, 12 to 15, mm-hmm. that's compelling yeah. relative to what we think you're going to be able to get in the public markets. Yeah, I would agree. And I would also say, I think that it's, 
achievable without some either highly complicated, impossible to fathom, or basically unbelievable set of numbers accompanying a pitch deck. Right. Suggesting what has been done. I think there's a reason it's too good to be true because they probably aren't. Now it's it's an interesting topic how clients thought about that. Just the their allocations to private markets, which have gone up substantially uh, in your tenure and now with the kind of very heady public market valuations, whether or not there are other asset allocation moves afoot across the NEPC client base that you could point to. I don't think anything is as strong as that trend. I mean, obviously, you've seen the the U.S. market and growth have dominated in a way over really a 10-year period, but much more strongly in the, the last three or four years. You know, so what happens in, in that environment, particularly if interest rates do go back up, does that take um, some of the bloom off the rose for those, you know, high, much higher, longer investment story uh, growth stocks? You know, and, and just creating balance in the portfolio because, you know, as you had such a big run up in those stocks, the, the growth part of the portfolio and the U.S. part of the portfolio became a, a larger and larger portion. And, you know, having that discipline to rebalance back, you know, even though it's painful because you rebalance and then a year later, you're like, why did I ever do that? You know, but we think that's where the discipline comes in. And I think that discipline is going to be tested uh, even more so in 2022. In 21, you had an incredible year, 25 to 30% for the, the U.S. equity market, let's say. And among the lowest inter-year drawdowns that we've ever experienced. So you got a great return, but had no pain associated with that. You know, given all the, the turmoil in, in both the investment markets, the economic forecast, the geopolitical aspect, we think there's going to be the potential for a lot more disruption with, you know, in the year. It doesn't mean yeah. you know, we're not calling for a big negative year, but just potentially more disruption in how you deal with that and how you have that discipline about rebalancing, uh, we think is really important uh, as a, an investment consultant to help our clients navigate uh, those turbulent waters. Yeah. Now, I think I'm in the camp of Byron Wien, who came out the other day with, um, I guess, a prognostication similar to what you just said, which is I think there's going to be a lot more volatility, but overall lower returns, yeah. choppier waters. And, and very unlikely to see mid-20, high 20% equity market returns. Yeah, it, it, to, to use your choppy waters analogy, it's much better to have smooth sailing and high returns. And you know, <laughs> that's what we had in 21. And it was fantastic. Our clients on the whole did really well. And it's great to see those portfolios well-structured, but still larger to help meet the needs that they ultimately have for the assets. But you know, there are, you know, even in 2020, early COVID, you know, it dropped and came back yeah. so yeah. quickly. We haven't had any type of extended drawdown like we did, you know, early in my career, the the tech bubble or in the global financial crisis and how you deal with that. We think that's where, you know, frankly, a lot of the value that we've provided to clients over time, we think we've helped them navigate those really difficult times. So a modest but not too extended dislocation will be good for you. No comment. (laughs) So you can't root for that though, right? Because you want to see your, I mean, you want your clients just to continue making money. And it's, uh, so it's been a, it's been a heck of a run. Couldn't agree more. Well, Mike, it's been a pleasure. I hope that 2022 is a healthy year and a productive year following on the heels of 21. And then we get together in person before long. I hope so. Like I said, that's a, a big part of why people get in the industry. And that is my, when, when it opened up more over the summer, it was great to go back in the office and just to have, you know, 
see people have conversations. It's felt like you know them because you you know you see them so much on the screen, but then you realize like, oh, I've not been in person together for a year. And I do think there is something that that's missed. I'm I'm proud of the way our team has managed our way through it, and but still excited to put it in the rear view, but take some learnings from it too. Amen. Thanks for joining me today. Jazz, I always love talking with you and best of luck for 2022. Take care.